Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 168, Long Duration Mere Flight NASA 5, Part 2, The Specter of Progress. Last time, we covered the first part of astronaut Mike Foles' four-and-a-half-month stay on the Russian space station Mir. We only made it to the fifth week of Foles' journey, however, as both our narrative and the entire Mir space station felt the impact of Progress M34. As part of a rendezvous test gone awry, the resupply craft crunched into the Spectre module's solar array, tore a hole in the hull, and sent the entire station into a slow but uncontrolled tumble, before itself tumbling off for an eventual deorbiting. When we left our intrepid crew of Vasily Tsibliev, Sasha Lazutkin, and Mike Fole, they had just wrapped up 30 sleepless hours of crisis management, sealing off the leaking Spectre module, and orienting Mir to an attitude that ensured a reliable supply of electricity. After sleeping in shifts and catching their breath for a bit, the natural question was, what's next? The crew had made it through the immediate crisis unscathed, but there was still a lot of work to do before anyone would be returning to life as normal. The first lengthy task was to slowly recharge all of the onboard batteries. To do this, the crew would remove paneling from the sides of various modules to access the large batteries, disconnect them, and bring them over to the base block for charging. Even under nominal conditions, this would be pretty onerous, but with the station even darker than usual due to the low power, and with the usual amount of onboard clutter, it was a real challenge. Before you could even get to the panel, you had to clear a workspace, as well as clearing a good path to bring the bulky battery back to the base block. Though Fall noted that Crystal still had some illumination thanks to the inclusion of the greenhouse experiment, the one that Shannon Lucid had grown wheat in. For some reason, despite being physically located in Crystal, the experiment was powered by the base block. Go figure. Recharging the batteries was tedious, but at least it was fairly straightforward. What was not at all straightforward was the plan being developed to attempt to rescue the stricken Spectre module. Rescuing Spectre would be a worthwhile cause for a number of reasons. In a sort of vague order of most important to least important, as judged by me, we can start off with the fact that Spectre's exterior sported some nice big solar arrays. Okay, one of them wasn't so nice anymore, but there were still a bunch that could work fine. With electricity always at a premium on Mir, restoring the flow of power from those arrays would make a huge difference. You don't even need to have hard numbers to see what an impact the disconnection of Spectre's solar arrays made. Load up a photo of Mir and do a count of the large solar arrays. By my count, there are 10, with 4 of them on Spectre. And on top of that, most of the other large arrays were between 5 and 9 years older than the ones on Spectre, so they had degraded over time and were delivering less power. Spectre actually had two of its solar arrays added very late in the process specifically to help deal with the diminishing power being delivered by the rest of the station's panels. So the damage and disconnection of its panels was a really big deal. Second, Spectre was one of the primary modules for doing scientific work inside the station. In addition to various Earth observation instruments, it was also a main location for experiments performed by NASA crew members. This makes sense because NASA actually funded the final development and launch of Spectre as an early part of the Shuttle Mir partnership. Third, this is just me speculating, but because of that NASA funding, I would imagine that at least part of the desire to save Spectre was in an effort to save face. NASA had joined the Russians to do this project together, forked over a boatload of cash in order to help get more science done, and then Russia had essentially crashed a big space truck into their shiny new module. 
It wasn't exactly the image that a country that was very proud of its space program wanted to portray. And last, and, well, actually least, Mike Foles' stuff was in there. Spectre had been where Foles slept, so his personal effects were trapped in the depressurized module, and it would be nice to get them back. Also, what a weird problem to have for Mike Fole. Okay, so I think we can agree that attempting to save Spectre was a good idea, but how could you even do it? Well, you've heard of EVAs, or extravehicular activity, now it's time to plan an IVA, intravehicular activity. The plan, in short, was for Tsibliev and Lazutkin to don their Orlan spacesuits and enter the depressurized Spectre, hoping to find and repair the leak in the hull and reconnect the module's solar arrays to the station's power system. The first goal seemed somewhat unlikely, due to the small size of the leak and the large size of the module, and with all the panels and systems and equipment in the way. But the second one was actually pretty doable. There's just one problem. How would they connect the power cables that were inside Spectre to the overall station, when in between them was an airtight hatch? The answer arrived a little less than two weeks after the collision with Progress M34, with the arrival of Progress M35. Among other things, the supply ship contained a hastily manufactured adapter plate for the hatch that was sealing off Spectre. Built into this adapter were a number of electrical hookups for both sides of the hatch. So if the crew could get into Spectre, install this special hatch, and connect the power cables to it from the inside, then when they were done and everything was sealed back up, the former entrance to Spectre would now have some electrical connections on the outside, allowing its solar panels to be used again. This was a relatively straightforward concept, but in practice it would be difficult to execute. Tests needed to be performed to see if the suits could even maneuver around inside the confines of the module. The crew needed to practice working with this adapter plate that they had never trained for, and every cable snaking its way through the node needed to be disconnected so all the other modules could be sealed. The crew got to work. While the crew prepares for the IVA, let's take a brief detour to look at something else that arrived in Progress M35. Along with the adapter plate, shelf-stable food and supplies, fresh snacks, and new family photos for full, was a European experiment named MAPS. Now, I must admit that I have been completely unable to find anything about MAPS other than what is mentioned in Mike Full's oral history interview. I can't even find what it stands for. It seems that the combination of using a common English word for its name, and the fact that an identically named experiment also flew on the ISS, just makes this unsearchable. But I'm mentioning it because it really made me laugh, and I think it highlights the disconnect between ground controllers and the crews actually flying mere missions, especially under these circumstances. MAPS was a big cylinder that full compared to the size of a desk. Or more importantly, it was barely smaller than the passageway between station modules, if there were no cables in the way. Clearly, engineers on the ground had just dug up the specifications for Mir, looked at how wide the passageways were and how big the modules were, and designed their equipment, forgetting that those specs were for when the station was empty. Part of why I find maps so funny is that even Mike Fole wasn't entirely sure what it was, why it was there, or what it was supposed to do. But he did know that while they eventually wanted to get it outside, for now the ground wanted to park it in the docking module. So the crew had to carefully remove cabling and clear a path around various equipment and supplies, moving it all the way from the progress, through Kavant 1, through the base block, into the node, into Crystal, and finally into the docking module. 
Oh, and be careful, because for some reason, this giant cylinder is stuffed full of ammonia. So, don't break it. To top off the map's farce, after being a massive distraction to a crew that really needed to focus on the task at hand, it remained in the docking module forever, presumably finally making its way outside as the docking module disintegrated around it during Mir's re-entry around four years later. Oh well. Back to our IVA preparations. They're actually not going great. Commander Tsibliev, who has been under just a little bit of stress, felt his heart skip in a funny way and an EKG soon confirmed that he had a mild arrhythmia, disqualifying him from the strenuous IVA. However, in a twist that truly demonstrated just how much confidence the Russians now had in Mike Fole, he was asked to substitute for Tsibliev. Fole had some concerns about whether he could do this novel task with a lack of dedicated training, but he got to work preparing so he could do his best. But just a few days later, it turned out to be a moot point. In order to make the IVA itself go more easily, Lazutkin had been working in the node, disconnecting as many cables as possible ahead of time so there would only be a few left to deal with on the big day. It was a big task, disconnecting hundreds of cables in a specific order. Unfortunately, he got one cable wrong, disconnecting a data cable between attitude control sensors and the attitude control system itself. He quickly plugged it back in and for a moment thought that maybe nothing had come of it, but when the master alarm triggered, he knew that he had screwed up. Lazutkin was under an extraordinary amount of stress, and it was a simple mistake to make, but it was a mistake nonetheless. When the data cable became disconnected, the station no longer knew which way it was pointed. So I guess rather than risk being in some sort of crazy death spin without even realizing it, the computer shut down all the gyrodynes. This is already not great, but then you remember that the conservation of angular momentum exists, when the gyrodynes shut down, all that angular momentum had to go somewhere. So not only was Mir now not controlling its attitude, it was slowly spinning again, and spinning away from the sun. They were back into the same crisis they had encountered immediately after the progress collision. During the lengthy effort to recover Mir's attitude, the crew made a somewhat distressing discovery. They decided to start powering up the Soyuz just in case the situation worsened and they were forced to abandon the station. But it turns out that this wasn't possible. In order to turn on the Soyuz, its power supply needed to be switched from Mir to the Soyuz itself. But in order to do that, the Soyuz needed power from Mir. So basically, you couldn't turn on the Soyuz if the station was dead. Even if its batteries were fully charged, switching from Mir power to Soyuz battery power required power from Mir. This raises some obvious questions about its utility as an emergency lifeboat, since it apparently meant that station power was required for an evacuation, greatly limiting the number of scenarios allowing the crew to escape. But after a little while, just by chance, Mir eventually rotated back onto the sun enough that the crew had sufficient power to turn on the Soyuz. Full sort of downplayed this later, saying that he thought the media made too big of a deal out of it, but for 13 minutes there, the crew was simply stuck. And as we've learned on this mission and the previous one, a lot can happen in 13 minutes on Mir. Anyway, the combination of Sibliev's arrhythmia, the attitude crisis, and a clearly overstressed and overworked crew led the ground to decide to postpone the IVA until the next Russian crew arrived in a couple of weeks. The new crew arrived on August 7th aboard Soyuz TM-26. The spacecraft only contained the two Russian crew members, with no short-term crew member joining them. 
Originally, a French astronaut was intended to fly with the crew, but due to the ongoing trouble caused by the Progress collision, his flight was delayed. This new crew is going to be with us for a while, so let's meet them. Commanding Mir for this mission was Anatoly Solovyev, who was actually a familiar face. He caught a ride to Mir back on the first shuttle docking flight, STS-71. Back then, I decided to not get into his backstory since he was just flying as a passenger, but I suppose that now that he'll be a central figure, it's time to properly introduce him. Anatoly Yakovlevich Solovyev was born on January 16, 1948 in Riga, which was then part of the Soviet Union, but is now the capital of Latvia. He spent his late teens as a general laborer and metal worker before heading back to school. He graduated from the Lenin Komsomol Chernigov Higher Military Aviation School and spent the next few years serving as a senior pilot and group commander in the Soviet Armed Forces. In 1976, he joined Cosmonaut Group 6 and began three years of general training. Solovyev apparently couldn't get enough of space because he flew on missions in 1988, 1990, 1992, and 1995, racking up over 450 days in low Earth orbit before adding nearly 200 more on this flight. Well, he's back for one last time on this, his fifth of five flights. Joining Solovyev was Flight Engineer 1 for Mir EO-24, Pavel Vinogradov. Pavel Vladimirovich Vinogradov was born on August 31, 1953 in Magadan, in the far east of Russia. He graduated from the Moscow Aviation Institute, specializing in booster design, going on to become a computer systems analyst. He spent the next six years working in software development for a variety of things surrounding recoverable space vehicles. In 1983, he began working for Energia and actually helped to develop the Buran, which only flew the one time, and the Soyuz TM, which he just launched on. I actually think a pretty cool thing about the Russian space program is that it seems like a fair number of cosmonauts are just engineers who are working on the space program and then one day found themselves riding in a spacecraft that they had been working on. In 1992, he became a cosmonaut and served in a couple of backup roles, but this is his first of three lengthy flights. The combined crew spent the next week doing a handover, and on August 14th, Sibliev and Lazutkin said their goodbyes, climbed aboard Soyuz TM-25, and departed for a return to Earth. Vasily Tsibliev and Sasha Lazutkin's six-month stay in orbit contained some of the wildest and scariest moments in all of human spaceflight history. There was a nearly catastrophic fire, a near-miss from Progress M-33, and a severe collision from Progress M-34 completely changing the nature of life on Mir. But despite all that, they persevered. Mir wasn't abandoned, nobody was killed or even seriously injured, and while Mir would never again be the same after the crash, it continued to function and still had years of useful life left ahead of it. Neither man would fly in space again, so we'll bid them a fond farewell and hope that their next assignment is a little less stress-inducing. The next day, Solovyev, Vinogradov, and Fole piled into the remaining Soyuz and undocked from Kuvant 1, so they could reposition the spacecraft on the node's docking port. Along the way, Solovyev brought the Soyuz near the damaged Spectre module, and Fole squirmed into the orbital module at the front of the Soyuz to take some photos and videos of the damage. The hope was that by analyzing this footage, clues about the source of the leak might be revealed. One quick trip around the station later, Solovyev docked the Soyuz at the node and the crew got back to work. A few days later, Progress M35, which had been told to take a hike while both ports were taken up by Soyuz TM25 and 26, 
returned and moved in to dock with the Kavat 1 port. Despite its trouble-free docking the first time, for this approach, M35 decided to extend the streak of troublesome progress dockings. During the last 100 or so meters, the rendezvous system on the progress failed, requiring Commander Solovyev to take over with the same Toru control system that Sibliev had used for both manual progress docking attempts. But this time, the system was actually being used for its intended purpose. Progress M35 was already most of the way there, and just needed a little help closing the final gap. So despite the hiccup, it redocked with no major drama. Once the new crew had settled in, it was time for the IVA. They donned their spacesuit gloves and practiced the procedures with the adapter plate while still in a nice and easy pressurized environment. They also worked out solutions to some potentially sticky situations that could arise if things went wrong. For example, what if something went awry while swapping out the Spectre hatch and it wasn't possible to repressurize the node? Since the node connects all the other modules together, it wouldn't be possible to access any other part of the station, and there would be no choice but to abandon Mir. Okay, that wouldn't be great, but that's one reason why the Soyuz was docked at the node. If the worst happened, the spacewalking crew could just climb into the Soyuz and head home. Except, hang on, Mike Fole is in there. With a fresh Russian crew on board, Fole had been bumped from the Spectre spacewalk, so would wait inside the safest place on the station and their only ride home, the Soyuz. But Full didn't have a spacesuit, so how could the Russian crew enter from a vacuum? Ah, this is pretty easy thanks to the design of the Soyuz. Full would wait inside the pressurized descent module, and if necessary, the orbital module could be vented. The Russian crew could get in, close the hatch, and repressurize. It would be a tight fit, but it would be doable. Except there's another wrinkle in this plan. The hatch to the Soyuz can't be opened from the outside. Because of course it can't, otherwise this would be too easy. Hmm. Well, Fole could just head over and open the door, right? No, because the orbital module would be depressurized and he doesn't have a suit. So what to do? This is great. What they did was start out with Fole moving from the node into the orbital module, then closing the hatch behind him. Once that was done, Solovyev and Vinogradov were left in the node with their spacesuits and vented half the atmosphere out. Full then undid the latches for the Soyuz hatch. This sounds crazy at first, but the hatch was a plug-like design, so with the full atmosphere on his side and the half atmosphere on the node side, the hatch was unlatched but wedged into place. He then moved into the descent module and closed that hatch while he waited for the guys to finish the IVA. In the meantime, the node and the orbital module were fully vented. With no more pressure holding the hatch shut, it was free to swing open and let the Russian crew in. This plan actually works fine, but with one last little complication that Fole specifically pointed out as being illustrative of the differences between the NASA and Roscosmos approaches. As the Russian crew vented the node down to half-atmosphere, Vinogradov noticed that his glove was leaking. It wasn't an emergency, but it also meant that they couldn't proceed with the spacewalk. In response, they just repressurized, Solovyev climbed out of the back of his Orlan suit, helped Vinogradov fit on a new glove, climbed back into his suit, vented to half-atmosphere again, and confirmed that the glove was okay, before proceeding with the spacewalk. Fole was struck by the no-nonsense shrug-and-fix-it sort of response to the leaky glove, speculating that NASA likely would have at least called off the EVA for the day until the problem could be looked into. But, as a great man once said, this is how we fix problem in Russian space station. 
Once the IVA actually got going, it went nice and smoothly. Upon entering the module, they found that much of the equipment was coated in frost, and there were white crystals floating around inside. Spooky. The leak was not able to be located from inside the module, but the rewiring worked with no issues. And on the way out, Solovyev grabbed some of Foles' stuff, including family photos, his laptop, a light for an experiment, and some other odds and ends. Though, I've gotta wonder what two months of being in a hard vacuum does to a laptop. I never did hear if it worked again or not. Other than the inability to find the leak, the only other problem with the IVA was that the Solar Array slew commands were not able to be passed through the adapter as was hoped. So while they now had access to any power that they generated, the panels couldn't be rotated to track the sun, which reduced their effectiveness somewhat. But later in the episode, we'll use a little ingenuity to improve their performance. After five and a half hours, uh, inside, the spacewalk came to an end. A couple weeks later, it was time to put the spacesuits back on again, but this time for good old-fashioned EVA. Commander Solovyev would again be climbing into his Orlan suit, but this time he was joined by Mike Fole. The primary goal of this EVA was basically the same as the IVA, but this time coming at it from the other direction. The duo hoped to inspect the exterior of Spectre and take some close-up photos and videos that might indicate the source of the leak. They also brought some scaffolding that could be set up at the impact site to facilitate future repairs. Fole's main job in this was to operate the Strela Crane, helping to move Solovyev around on Spectre. This was actually a pretty great role, because it left him with a lot of time to just look around and enjoy the view, which is such a rare treat when performing an EVA. But the more interesting view may not have been the view of the Earth, but actually over on Spectre, where Commander Solovyev, I kid you not, was hacking away at the space station module with a knife. Okay, I intentionally phrased that to make it sound a little crazier, but he was literally just using a knife to slice open pieces of insulation to get a look at the bare metal underneath. And what's wild is that this isn't even the only time that a cosmonaut has hacked away at the exterior of a spacecraft with a knife. It'll happen after our narrative comes to a close, but in 2018, while looking for the source of a small leak on a Soyuz docked to the International Space Station, cosmonaut Oleg Kononenko also used a knife to cut through some insulation. And unlike the Spectre EVA, there's HD video footage of Kononenko really going to town on the Soyuz, so be sure to look it up. A couple of times, Fole made the hand-over-hand trek down Strela to assist Solovyev, holding his feet as the cosmonaut plunged headfirst into the insulation. Despite their best efforts, the source of the leak could still not be found, and actually never would be found, so the scaffolding was just stored nearby for potential use on another occasion. While they were out there, Solovyev adjusted Spectre's solar arrays manually, increasing their output by about 10%. This was done manually because the new adapter plate was successful in transmitting power, but did not allow them to slew the panels. So what ingenious technique did they use to manually position the arrays? Just a big pole with a hook on the end. Hey, if it works, it works. On the way back inside, Fole grabbed an experiment that had been left outside by his predecessor, Jerry Lininger, closing out a six-hour EVA. After the EVA, the craziness of the mission had largely died down. At this point, while Spectre hadn't been recovered, much of its power supply had, and the station was mostly functioning as intended. As the weeks ticked by, there were a couple more instances of a computer crashing, leading to a loss of attitude control, but I think people sort of made a bigger deal out of this than was necessary. 
I don't want to downplay it, since computers crashing and sending space stations out of control is definitely not a good thing, but I think that the description sounds way worse than it actually was. The station would slowly drift off of the sun, and the crew would have to once again go through the arduous process of regaining power and control, but it's not exactly all that dangerous on its own. Though that didn't stop congressional hearings on whether the shuttle Mir program was too dangerous to continue running. Much of Full's time was occupied by continuing to do the maintenance work that he had volunteered for early in the mission, with something like half his time being dedicated to just sopping up condensed water. This was especially a problem in the modules that hadn't yet been fully powered up, since they were so much colder, encouraging humid air to condense on their surfaces. Fole would find himself confronted by blobs of water exceeding a meter in diameter, sometimes completely immersing electronic equipment. But with spare towels, dirty clothes, and anything else that was absorbent, he slowly made progress. The final step in the drying process would be to route some of the hot air from the base block through ventilation ducts and into the power down modules. While the warm, humid air would make the condensation worse at first, it would soon start to dry the module out, and equalizing the temperature made it less likely for more water to condense. The Russian ground control estimated that over the years, they had lost track of 7 tons of water. Full speculated that some of that was no longer on the station, I guess leaving as humidity with visiting vehicles and airlock dumps, but much of it was still lurking around, just hanging out in the walls. Pretty weird. But I guess now I can see why the previous crew wanted to use the shuttle systems to dump some extra water overboard. Shortly before the arrival of Space Shuttle Atlantis on STS-86, Perota was powered back on, and with that, the station was basically back to full operating status. Just you know, minus Spectre. As usual, we'll cover the arrival of Space Shuttle Atlantis and Foles' replacement in more detail when we get to those missions in the timeline, but suffice it to say that on February 27th, 1997, Atlantis docked with Mir as part of STS-86, and a little under a week later, Mike Fole said his goodbyes to the Russian crew and soon watched Mir grow smaller and smaller through Atlantis's windows. When Atlantis touched down at the Kennedy Space Center, it ended 144 tumultuous days in space for Mike Full. He had endured a crisis that no NASA astronaut had encountered since the days of Apollo 13 and Skylab 2, and come through it intact. He even managed to do a fair amount of science during the flight. And in a first for the Shuttle Mir program, this was not his final flight, so we'll see Mike again a little bit down the road. So once again, we must ask ourselves, what are we to make of this mission? I think it's clear that this was the lowest point of the Shuttle Mir program. As bad as the fire during NASA 4 had been, both the crew and the station made a full recovery, with Leninger's mission ending as a success. With NASA 5, the crew were only minutes away from dying of hypoxia, or only a few meters away from progress crashing into something less resilient and blowing out the entire onboard atmosphere all at once. Between the fire, the collision, and the computer crashes, the Shuttle Mir program began to draw a lot of negative attention from the media and from members of Congress. But all that said, I actually think that NASA 5 is a pretty cool mission. I think that the Progress Rendezvous experiment wasn't the greatest idea, and could have been handled much better in order to improve its odds of success. But it wasn't, like, completely insane to try it. And while the collision was terrible, I think having a crew deal with a close call every once in a while is probably healthy for spaceflight in general. 
They had to exercise their emergency procedures and verify that they actually worked, put their knowledge of physics and the station's systems to use as they improvised a solution to the attitude problem, and it once again reinforced the lesson that spaceflight will never tolerate carelessness, incapacity, and neglect. I also think that while nothing similar happened again during Mike Foles' stay with NASA, it's not the worst thing to have a member of the astronaut corps who's gone through something like the months-long improvised recovery on Mir. That's a unique experience that would never come up in traditional training. And if we're ever going to leave this pale blue dot behind, we're going to need people who can formulate and execute clever solutions to unique problems in space. We'll talk a little more about the investigations and hearings about Shuttle Mir when we cover NASA 6, but I'll mention here that Tom Stafford's conclusion was that, quote, Not only is the Mir station deemed to be a satisfactory life support platform at this time, but it is anticipated that significant operational and scientific experience is still to be gained through continued joint operations. I don't know about you guys, but if it's good enough for Tom Stafford, it's good enough for me. Next time. Corporate needs us to find the differences between STS-83 and STS-94. They're the same mission. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Pass.